The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. There's a new show premiering on TV this week, Reconstruction, America After the Civil War. It's a four-hour documentary on PBS produced and hosted by Henry Louis Gates Jr. It explores the years after the Civil War when the country struggled to rebuild the South in the face of massive destruction and revolutionary social change. For comment, we turn to Eric Foner. He was the chief historical advisor on the show. He's the DeWitt Clinton Professor of History at Columbia University, author of many award-winning books, including Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution. He's also a member of the editorial board of The Nation. We reach him today in Manhattan. Eric, welcome back. Good to talk to you, John. Well, you say that America in the late 1860s was the first time in this country, or really anywhere, that an interracial democracy was created. But that's not the way a lot of us learned about the South after the Civil War. Uh, no, that is true. And one of the purposes of this uh, series, this documentary on Reconstruction, is to try to, uh, A, disabuse people of some of the mythology that is still perhaps being taught in schools in various places about Reconstruction, uh, certainly what I learned in school when I was uh, growing up a good while ago, um, and also to provide a different point of view. And that point of view, as you said, is that Reconstruction, when for the first time in our history, African-American men in any num- real numbers were allowed to vote and hold public office, uh, this was a major step in the history of American democracy, and in fact, democracy all around the world. Interracial democracy, biracial democracy, was an extremely rare thing in the 19th century world. And interracial democracy, that, of course, means black voters, in this case, voters who had been slaves a few years earlier, and black candidates. I know that a few years ago you set out to identify all the black men who had been elected to office during Reconstruction. There's a famous Courier and Ives print from 1872 showing the black men in Congress, one senator and six representatives, all from the South, How many others did you find? Well, in Congress, there were two black senators during Reconstruction. The first was Hiram Revels, who's in that lithograph, and the second was Blanche K. Bruce a little later. I think there were 14 members of the House of Representatives at one time or another during Reconstruction. Uh, But then you go out to much larger numbers in lesser posts, uh, members of state legislatures. There were several hundred of them. Uh, And then you can go down to school board officials, justices of the peace, you know, sheriffs, uh, tax collectors, you name it. Uh, I found, and in a book of mine about 20 years ago, I I discussed a little, I I published little capsule biographies of about 1,500 of them. Uh, And I'm sure there were other local officials that uh, haven't yet quite gotten into the historical record. So I emphasize maybe about 2,000, I estimate 2,000 uh, African-American public office holders. I'm not talking about newspaper editors. I'm not talking about uh, political party activists. There were more of them. Public office holders of one kind or another, either elected or appointed, about 2,000. 
And how many black elected public officials were there before the Civil War? As far as I can tell, two, oh. although there might have been one or two more. There was a fellow, both of them were justices of the peace in the North. There was uh, Macon Allen in Massachusetts and... Um, John Langston, I think, out in Oberlin, Ohio. Uh, there probably were one or two more, but really black office holding was fundamentally unknown before the Civil War. And indeed, blacks could only vote before the Civil War in a handful of northern states, all of them uh, in New England, uh, where the black population was minuscule. So uh, black political power was really not known very much before the Civil War. And Reconstruction created it. And that, of course, was what led to the violent reaction and opposition to Reconstruction, this shift of political power in the South. It's not that blacks ran the whole South, not at all, but they exercised genuine political power in, a, in states where, which had been slave states up to a few years before. Before we get to the white response to the election of black leaders in the Reconstruction South, I wanted to ask whether among the 2,000 elected black men you discovered during Reconstruction. Are there any particularly illuminating people who we should know about? Oh, well, we should know about all of them, basically. Uh, one of the, we mentioned before that uh, really there's still a lot of misconception or just lack of knowledge about Reconstruction. Uh, for example, I believe uh, there's a lot of debate, as you know, about Confederate monuments uh, I believe there's only one little statue or bust of a black congressman from Reconstruction in the South. That would be Robert Smalls in Beaufort, South Carolina. Uh, somebody sent me an email the other day saying they had unveiled a little plaque about Lawrence Kane, who was a member of the South Carolina legislature from Edgefield County in Reconstruction. But, you know, with 2,000 of them, uh, there's hardly any notice of them in uh, the southern public landscape. This is one of the major problems when you're thinking about Confederate monuments. The whole presentation of history in the South is totally one-sided. You got every Confederate colonel's got a, got a statue on a horse, but um, major black figures, senators, congressmen, and down to local ones get no public recognition uh, whatsoever. Robert Smalls, who I mentioned, was certainly a tremendously uh, important and remarkable person. You know, he was a slave, and very famously during the Civil War, he uh, put his, he he was a pilot on a little Confederate ship in Charleston Harbor. And one night, he put his family, his wife, children, some friends on the ship, and sailed it out and surrendered it to the Union forces blockading uh, Charleston Harbor. And he became a kind of a hero for a while in the Civil War. Later, he went back to Beaufort, where he came from and became really the local political boss. He was in the legislature. He was elected to Congress. He was in the state constitutional convention. He was at a federal appointment as collector of customs for many, many years, including after Reconstruction. So he's, Smalls is a good example of how a person who had been a slave can actually rise to significant local political power uh, during Reconstruction. There were many, many remarkable uh, black officials, Francis Cardozo's in South Carolina, who really oversaw the establishment of the first public school system in the history of that state. There were people like James Lynch, the Secretary of State of Mississippi, who was renowned as an orator. People would come from miles and miles away just to hear him uh, give his um, give his speeches. But what really struck me in doing this work, and what we talk about, of course, in the series, is these local people. 
many of them, we don't know that much about them, but how they kind of stepped up into positions of responsibility and tried to serve the interests of their own people and indeed of the whole uh, of the whole society. Um, and um, justices of the peace, you know, school board officials, people like that. Uh, that's what's really remarkable to me, not the 15 or 16 who served in Congress, but these local guys who, um, you know, really emerged almost out of nowhere as far as the historical record is concerned uh, to, uh, you know, take up the mantle of making freedom something substantive for the black community. And what would you say are the most significant, lasting political achievements of Reconstruction America? Well, of course, the, the most tangible legacy of Reconstruction is the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments of the U.S. Constitution, which really transformed the Constitution. Uh, some people, including me, call it the second founding. In fact, by coincidence, that's the title of a book of mine that's coming out in the fall, okay. The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. These amendments abolished slavery. In the 14th Amendment, they put into the Constitution for the first time the principle of birthright citizenship, still debated today, equal protection of the law regardless of race. The 15th Amendment tried to guarantee the right to vote for black men all over the country, not just in the South. Um, and these are still in the Constitution. You know, for a long time, they were fundamentally abrogated by the Supreme Court. The South was able to just violate these amendments uh, with the acquiescence of the Supreme Court. But they are still there, and they became the legal foundation for the Civil Rights Revolution of the 1960s, which is sometimes called the Second Reconstruction. But there are many other legacies of Reconstruction that are tremendously important. The black church as a large independent institution is created during Reconstruction. There have been black churches before, but it's in Reconstruction that it becomes this giant center of the black community, which it remains all the way to the present. Public education in the South for whites and blacks uh, created during Reconstruction. The black colleges which have uh, educated, you know, thousands and thousands of African Americans come out of Reconstruction. Uh, so, you know, uh, the political gains of Reconstruction are later reversed. There's no question about that. The right to vote is taken away around the turn of the century. But these other accomplishments survive. So we sh even though we often get into a frame of mind where we're saying, oh, Reconstruction failed, Reconstruction failed, it didn't fail entirely. Some of it failed, but it did leave legacies which became the springboard for future struggles. Twelve years of Reconstruction and then 75 years of segregation, lynching, denial of the right to vote. Uh, how did that happen? Uh, well, that's a long story. Uh, I would say, though, that it's... Uh, uh, I, I would amend your question slightly to say the rise of Jim Crow segregation lynching didn't occur immediately. We usually say Reconstruction ended around 1877, but there then followed almost a generation of a kind of twilight zone where some blacks retained the right to vote, others didn't. Um, these institutions continued to thrive. Um, there was a deterioration, but, not, but history never just ends at one particular moment. It wasn't until really around the turn of the century, that racial segregation was fully implemented in the South, disenfranchising, uh, disenfranchisement was fully implemented. And um, at that point, you have the Jim Crow system fully in place. Um, but that's a generation after 
the end of Reconstruction. Nonetheless, it happened. Whether it happened slowly or, or quickly may not really be the main problem. It happened because of the violent terrorism, you might really, you should call it, of the Ku Klux Klan and groups like that, which helped to overthrow the Reconstruction governments one by one, and to put back into power white supremacist Democrats, who then, over the next years, you know, worked on ways to restore white supremacy in the South. It also happened because of a retreat on the part of the North. There's some debate among historians about how rapid that retreat was. Was it all at once after 1877 or slowly? Um, again, it may not matter in the long run, but um, I go for the slow uh, explanation that it took a while for this retreat to be fully in force. Uh, the Supreme Court, I mean, I think Reconstruction and its aftermath is a lesson which is certainly relevant today of what can happen to your constitutional rights in the hands of a supreme a conservative supreme court one by one case by case the rights guaranteed in the constitution were whittled away or abrogated by the supreme court uh... until it gave complete carte blanche to the white south to do whatever it wanted in uh, in race relations without any interference from the federal government the pbs show on reconstruction is not exclusively about 19th century America. The video at one point shows white nationalists in Charlottesville marching in the dark, carrying torches, and host and producer Skip Gates asks you whether you believe we as a nation are still undergoing the process of Reconstruction. What's your answer? My answer is that Reconstruction, the term, really means two things at the same time. One, it is a specific period of American history right after the Civil War, whether it ended in 1877, 1880, you can debate that. But it's a time period, like the era of good feelings or the Gilded Age or the Progressive Era. But Reconstruction is also a historical process. It's the process by which the United States tried to come to terms with the consequences of the Civil War, the two most important of which were the um, reun reunification or the, the you know survival of the nation state, and the second, the destruction of the institution of slavery. And in some ways, we are still trying to come to terms with the consequences of the destruction of the institution of slavery. As you see in that clip of the white supremacist marchers, there are still Americans, uh, too many of them, who really cannot accept the logic of the end of slavery, that black people are equal citizens. And um, so in that sense, we are still living in Reconstruction. We are still fighting over the issues. Who should have the right to vote? Who is a citizen? How do you protect Americans from terrorism? These are all Reconstruction questions, and they are right on the front pages of our newspapers today. So in that sense, Reconstruction never ended. The New York Times asked Henry Louis Gates, the Harvard professor who's producer and host of the PBS series on Reconstruction, if you could require the president to read one book, what would it be? And his answer was Eric Foner's book, Reconstruction, especially the sections about Andrew Johnson. If Trump took the advice of Skip Gates, what might he learn from those sections? Well, that was very kind of Professor Gates. Unfortunately, uh, my impression is that the president of the United States has never read a book and therefore, the chance of him reading this one is fairly remote. Uh, if he did pick it up, uh, he would find that Andrew Johnson was his predecessor. 
uh, not in ways that I would praise, but Andrew Johnson as president, of course, he succeeded Lincoln. He was the vice president when Lincoln was assassinated. Uh, uh, completely opposed any rights for black people. Uh, he opposed congressional actions uh, to protect the rights of black people. He vetoed the first civil rights law in American history in 1866. He told the states not to ratify the 14th Amendment. And he, um, you know, he, he helped to formulate some of the arguments against federal protection of the rights of black people that are still used today. The idea of reverse discrimination. He didn't use that term exactly, but in the civil rights veto, he said, you know, this bill, which basically created the equal citizenship of black people, uh, gives all the advantage to blacks and none to whites. Uh, and this idea that somehow uplifting blacks takes something away from white people is certainly something that Trump has, uh, has appealed to. Uh, so I think Trump would find a kindred spirit, actually, in uh, Andrew Johnson, even though most historians today uh, really think very uh, poorly of Andrew Johnson, he usually turns up at the very bottom of these, uh, you know, rankings that historians sometimes do, uh, rating the presidents from the great to the uh, abysmal. Now, Trump is giving him a run for his money, so Johnson may be boosted up to be the next to the worst president. But, um, but there, I think what Gates is trying to say is, uh, we have had in the White House before uh, men who try to build their political career on stirring up racism, stirring up hatred of the other, uh, and appealing to white privilege and white um, supremacy. The PBS series Reconstruction started this week. There are two two-hour shows. It continues next week. Eric Foner is the chief historical advisor featured in the series. Eric, thanks so much for talking with us today. Great to talk to you, John. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thank you.